Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born at this time of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. That's the collect for Christmas Day. Um, so I think we're probably close enough to hedge our bets and pray the colic for Christmas Day. Well, welcome, uh, you hearty bunch who apparently have your Christmas shopping done that you could afford to be here today. Uh, for the record, I don't have mine done, but um, I'm uh, a man of great faith and hope, so hopefully by the end of the day we'll have it all done. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 5 today and the beginning of chapter 6 for those of you who may be visiting us or uh, joining us for the first time. We're just going to give just a, a brief overview of what's happened thus far in Acts chapter 5 and then we're going to move on today into Acts chapter 6 which is a, a very significant turning point in the life of the church and that is the choosing of the deacons, the first seven deacons in the life of the church. But just to remind you where we are we said that we are seeing already in the church that there is an escalation in persecution among the apostles. But actually, it's not just a, a persecution of the apostles. We're seeing an escalation, really, of what I think is spiritual warfare in the life of the church. Um, as you go through the first few chapters of the book of Acts, everything looks very positive. Everything seems to be moving along uh, very well. Uh, the church is a model church in many respects, but as the church grows, it would appear that they are gaining the attention of the enemy. Uh, you'll know that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says this, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Paul is very clear that as Christians, we are engaged in a struggle. The church is not a cruise ship. Our bishop likes to say it is a battleship. And so if you are a Christian, you have signed on for battle. And the Apostle Paul makes that point very clear in Ephesians chapter 6. You know, I find it very interesting to note in Ephesians that what Paul talks about is he talks about families. He talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. He talks about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And he talks about wives being obedient to their husbands. Now that's something we don't hear a great deal about today. Uh, I've always pointed out, however, that Paul gives us great balance there in Ephesians if you think about it. He's saying that women are to be obedient to their husbands. The husband is the spiritual head of the household. This is why the old marriage vows used to say, love, honor, and what? Obey. And people say, well, that's just, that's just so antiquated. That's, that's typical of the Apostle Paul. But we've moved beyond that today. I don't think we have moved beyond it. And I don't think that Paul was just beating up and, and, and making sure that women were barefoot and in, you know, the kitchen all the time. You must be June Cleaver. 
Paul balances it out because he says, yes, women are to be obedient to their husbands because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. But at the same time, he says what? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He died for it. In other words, he thought first of the church before he thought of himself. The old prayer book, and when I say the old prayer book, I'm not talking about the 1928 prayer book. I'm talking about the 1662 prayer book. And in the 1662 prayer book, it is true, wives would promise to love, honor, and obey. But do you know what husbands promised? They said, and with my body, I thee worship. And I've always thought to myself, you probably wouldn't have any problem with women being obedient to a man who worshiped the ground that they walked on. See, there's a balance there. But what's interesting is Paul talks about the relationship between husbands and wives, and then he talks about the relationship between parents and children. Children, obey your parents. Parents, do not frustrate your children. And he talks about all of that, all of that family dynamic, and then what's the very next thing that he says? And remember, there were no chapter divisions in the New Testament in those early days. So he talks about these family dynamics, he talks about marriage, and the next thing he says is, now put on the whole armor of God. Because your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Where is the enemy going to attack? He's going to attack in the family because it is the foundation for society. And I think we're seeing that in American culture today. Really, we're seeing that across Western culture today. Where is the enemy attacking more than anything else? He is attacking particularly in the family. But Paul's whole point here is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Don't think that. If it were flesh and blood, we could use the means that the world provides for us to combat the enemy. But our problem is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. And that's what I think we see happening back here in the book of Acts. We see that the church is growing. It's beginning to make a difference, a positive difference in the world, and to such a degree that it has now caught the attention of the enemy. And the enemy is going to up the game. We said, you only catch flack when you're what? Over the target. And the church is beginning to catch flack. We begin to see problems for the first time in the life of the church with Ananias and Sapphira. We see an intensification of persecution in the life of the church. In Acts chapter 5, what happens? Initially, the apostles are brought in. They are ordered not to speak anymore in this name. They are detained but never charged and released. The next thing that happens is what? They're arrested, brought in, and this time they're flogged. They're publicly beaten, and then they're sent off. And finally, they're brought in, they're ordered not to speak anymore in this name, and they're threatened with what? With death. So we see an intensification. We are seeing a spiritual struggle that is taking place in the life of the church. And that is just a reminder to us all that we are going to face that as Christians in the world. Now, mind you, the New Testament talks about seasons of difficulty, and I think I accentuated this last week. It doesn't mean that we're going to face it all the time, every place. There are going to be seasons. There are going to be times when there's relative peace in the life of the Christian church, and there are going to be those seasons when there are periods of relative difficulty. But the reality is, this is just part and parcel of living, as we do, in a broken and fallen world. Well, just turn to Acts chapter 5, and let's just pick up the narrative at verse 27, and we'll move on from there. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, 
and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered him, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, they are very upset, that is, the leaders of the people, the Sanhedrin, the, the same body, as we've said before, that actually condemned Jesus to death. That's the same body that Peter and, and John and the others are standing before. And they are ordered not to speak anymore in this name. And Peter repeats what he said before, that he has to obey God, not men. And then he proceeds to do what? Well, he doesn't give a defense. He doesn't make excuses for his actions. He doesn't try to explain them away. What does he do? He simply preaches the gospel. Every opportunity that Peter had, he seized it. And he shared the gospel. And what does he say? He said, the reality is the God of our fathers, that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're all Jews, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. This same Jesus, he says, whom you what? Killed. So he's laying the blame at their feet. Now this is the very thing that they were worried about. Because remember, they said, you are trying to put this man's blood on our head. And they didn't want that, which is rather ironic when you think about it. Because at the trial of Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, Pilate came out and washed his hands and said, I find no fault with this man. In other words, he's broken no Roman laws. You take him. Now, of course, the Jews didn't have the authority to put anybody to death. But do you remember what they cried out? May his blood be upon our heads and upon the heads of our children. That's what they shouted out. And now here, Peter's simply saying, well, that's what you want very well. This man's blood is upon your head. They don't like it now. And so they are resisting. But Peter doesn't let them off the hook. He says, but God has exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. So there's still the hope here. Peter's still holding out the hope. This is the God whose property is always to have mercy. Yes, you have sinned against the God of your fathers, against Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, you are guilty of the death of this innocent man whom God has now vindicated by raising him from the dead, who is the savior of our people. And there is still the hope for repentance. And furthermore, we are here to testify. We are the witnesses, the witnesses to these things. And so is, and this is very critical, the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, I think it's very significant that Peter mentions the Holy Spirit and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, you know that in the New Testament, we are told that there is one unforgivable sin. There's only one unforgivable sin in the Bible. Now, there are some branches of the Christian church, namely the Roman Catholics, who insist that there are others, that suicide, for example, is an unforgivable sin. Actually, there's nowhere in the New Testament that says that is the case. Now, I understand why they say that, but we can't go beyond what the Scripture testifies. The Scripture only says there is one unforgivable sin, and that is what? Oh, kinds of answers out there. But, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the only one that is mentioned in the New Testament as an unforgivable sin. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? How many of you are concerned that you may have perhaps unknowingly committed the unforgivable sin? Anybody ever worried about that? 
Nobody wants to admit it? I mean, how about... Let me tell you this. If you've ever worried about it, you've never committed it. So take comfort in that. What is the unforgivable sin? Well, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to convict people of their sin. To convict people of their sin and the truth of the gospel. The Pharisees were guilty of the unforgivable sin because guess what? They were convicted of their guilt and their sin, and they were also convicted of the truth of Jesus Christ, and yet they still refused to trust in Him. And if you are convinced of your sin and your guilt, and convinced of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to be forgiven, and you still willfully refuse to place your trust in Him, what hope is there? It's not that you've committed some grievous sin for which Christ cannot forgive you. Let me tell you something. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, it does not matter how grievous your sin may be. It doesn't matter how bleak your past may have been. There is always room in the ark of Christ Jesus, even for the vilest of the vile. Make him out to be an elephantine sinner, he said. And the arms of Jesus Christ are wide enough to embrace even your sin and forgive it. But if you know that truth, and you still refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ, what hope is there? Let me give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Keep your finger there in the book of Acts and turn to John chapter 3. Very familiar story. John chapter 3 tells the story of Nicodemus. Great, great section on you must be born again. But look at how John chapter 3 plays out. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. Now, we know who the Pharisees are. They're the ones that Jesus accused of having committed the unforgivable sin. They're the ones that were always plotting for his downfall, or at least to somehow discredit him in the eyes of the people. And John chapter 3 begins, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, ruler of the Jews means that he's not just a Pharisee. He's a member of the ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin the highest body of authority within Judaism in the first century. We have a division of power in our government, don't we? We have three branches of government. We have an executive branch, a judicial branch, and a what? Legislative branch. Why do we have three branches of government? Checks and balances, that's exactly right, so that no one body gains ultimate control. There were no checks and balances in first century Judaism. The Sanhedrin had ultimate authority over the religious life of the nation. They were the legislative branch. They were the executive branch. And they were ultimately the highest court of appeal. So we're talking about very powerful people. And it's not just that they had power over the people living there in Judea. They had power over every Jew living anywhere in the world in the first century. So you read here in John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. We're talking about a powerful, important man. Verse 2, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. I find that very interesting. John goes to great lengths to give us Nicodemus' background. And there's actually more here. 
The name Nicodemus is a Greek name, which indicates to us that he was probably a Hellenist, somebody who was Jewish but influenced by Greek culture. He would have been a very educated, very cosmopolitan figure. And he comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Why is he coming under the cover of darkness? He doesn't want anybody else to know that he's there. And furthermore, you'll notice that he says, not I know. He says what? We know that you are a man who's come from God. Why? Because no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. Well, who's the we? He came alone. Who's the we? Well, in light of what John's just said, it's obviously the Pharisees and the members of the ruling council. So they weren't oblivious as to who Jesus was. They knew who he was. They knew full well. They were trained. They were educated men that nobody could do the things that Jesus was doing. These were the signs and the wonders of the Messiah, and yet they still refused to believe. That's not doubt, folks. That's willful unbelief. And that's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness because they've been convicted and they still refuse to believe. So going back now to Acts chapter 5, you can see why it was then that Peter invoked the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, yeah, we're here to bear testimony to the truth of these things, but my goodness, it's God himself who is bearing testimony to you. And we're going to see, I don't know if we'll get to it today, maybe we will, we'll see. But you're going to see that that is precisely what was happening in the life of the Apostle Paul as well. Paul was being pricked in his conscience even before his conversion on the road to Damascus. So Peter is saying, you are without excuse. You are without excuse. Now, as I said, this is a courageous thing for Peter to say. Because these people were, as I said, the very same people who had condemned Jesus to death. They had the authority to put him to death as well. And yet some kind of change had taken place in the life of Peter, hadn't it? Bear in mind, this is the exact same Peter who had denied the Lord three times, once to a little girl in order to save his own skin. This is the same Peter who was behind bouldered and locked doors when the women came from the tomb and said, they've taken the body. What's happened to Peter? Well, what's happened to Peter is the resurrection. <laughs> The only thing that accounts for that kind of dramatic transformation, a man who is afraid for his own skin so much that he will deny his Lord three times, even to a little girl, who all of a sudden is now out there boldly preaching to the very same body that has the authority to put him to death as well. The only thing that accounts for that, my friends, is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It changed everything. And it still changes everything today. What's the worst thing anybody can do to you? Kill you? That's what they did to Jesus. And God raised him from the dead. And Peter knew that that's exactly what God could do for him. Well, look at verse 33. And when they heard this, they were enraged. They were convicted. What's the first thing you do when you're caught doing something you shouldn't? And you know you're guilty. But you don't like somebody blaming you. What do you do? More often than not, we make excuses, don't we? We get angry, we get frustrated, 
perhaps if God's working in our hearts, we may settle down and realize the truth of what the person is saying. But I can tell you that the first time somebody comes up and, and criticizes me for anything, my natural disposition is not to say, oh, you know, you are so right. My natural disposition is to immediately get my back up. And that is exactly what we see happening here. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Uh, this man, Gamaliel, who's a leader of the Sanhedrin, is saying, look, we've seen messianic movements before. We've seen people rise up, people go after them in droves, and before long, what happens? The Romans come along, chop off the head, and the body dies. We, this is nothing new. Calm down. Verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. One more thing before we leave chapter 5 and move on to chapter 6 that I want you to notice is this man, Gamaliel. We're going to meet him again in the book of Acts. He seems to be a wise man. Now, whether or not he was actually a believer, we're never told. It doesn't appear that he was. But it does appear as though he's at least temperate in his demeanor. He is using sage advice. It's worldly advice, but it's wise counsel. If it's of God, it's going to flourish, and there's not anything we can do about it. If it's not of God, it's going to perish. So let's just leave it alone and see what happens. Why is Gamaliel significant besides this? Keep your finger in Acts chapter 7 and flip ahead 15 chapters to Acts 22. This is many years later. A new man is on the scene. His name is Paul. And the book of Acts can be basically be divided into two parts. The first part of the book of Acts is about the ministry of the Apostle Peter. The second part of the book of Acts is really about the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions. So when you get to Acts chapter 22, we're coming really down the home stretch here. Uh, the Apostle Paul has been preaching throughout the world. He's been all over uh, the ancient Roman Empire. He's gone to Jerusalem, and he's been arrested there. And he is standing trial in Jerusalem. And this is Paul's defense, Acts chapter 22, verse 1. He said, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. 
In other words, he was, they thought he was somebody from off, but he was a Hebrew, and he was speaking to them in what? In the Hebrew language, in their own language. And of course, Paul, having been trained as a Pharisee, he was a very eloquent speaker when it came to these matters. And here's what he says, verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is, in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of who? Gamaliel. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So Gamaliel has a student when all these things are taking place. And that student is this man, Saul of Tarsus. Got to wonder, what was God doing in the life of these two men at this point? So we're going to meet his student later on in the book of Acts. But it's interesting to note that even at this early stage, the man who was counseling, be tempered in your approach, was the very man who was training a man who was anything but tempered in his approach. And a man who, as we will see in the next chapter, is ultimately responsible for the death of the very first Christian martyr. Well, let's turn now to Acts chapter 6. Let me pause there. Any questions about any of that? We covered a lot of ground there. Unforgivable sins, that sort of thing. Any questions about any of that before we move on to Acts chapter 6? No? Okay, well, let's take a look at Acts chapter 6 now. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Great many of the priests. So now we're moving in, not just among the common people, but among the leaders of the people. Was Gamaliel one of those? We don't know. We don't know. I always say that there'll be three great surprises when we get to heaven. We'll be surprised by who's there. We'll probably be surprised by who's not there. And who knows, we may even be surprised that we're there. But we don't know about Gamaliel. There are lots of people we don't know about in the New Testament. There are things that give us indicators. I mean, for example, what about that man who came to Jesus by night? Nicodemus. Did he ever get converted? He reappears at the end of the story of Jesus and participates in the burial of Jesus. But what was his motivation? Remember, God is not simply concerned with what we do on the outside. He's concerned with what's going on in the inside. Man looks on the outward appearance. What? God looks on the heart. There are lots of people that go to church 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that they've had a conversion. Perhaps they go to church out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of obligation, even out of a sense of tradition. How do we know that when Nicodemus participated in the burial of Jesus that he wasn't doing that out of a sense of guilt? We don't know. Now, we'd like to think, and we want to be generous, and we want to assume, but we don't know for sure. All we do know is that there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. Well, as I said, we're, we're seeing growth in the life of the church, but as the church grows, there's spiritual battles to be fought. You're getting to catch the enemy's attention, and so there are difficulties in the life of the church. There's Ananias and Sapphira. There's the struggle against the world. You know, we're always struggling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so you can see that in the life of the church. But as the church grew, there were other difficulties that arose that were not necessarily demonic in nature, but they were nevertheless problems that had to be dealt with. Anytime there is growth, there are always issues. And where are we going to put all the people? <laughs> How are we going to tend to all of their needs? As, as the church grows, so do the responsibilities of others. And that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 6. We see that the disciples were increasing in number and a complaint arose. Now it's interesting to note how it's described here in Acts chapter 6 verse 1. As the church was increasing in number, the word disciples there does not refer to the twelve. It's just a generic term. It means the followers. So now in these days when the disciples, the church was increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Anybody reading out of the NIV version of the Bible? What does is, what is your version say, Gov, of that first verse of chapter 6? Okay. Did you hear what he said? My version, if you're reading out of the ESV, simply says the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Whereas his version says the Hebraic Jews against the Grecian Jews. I want you to understand in these early days, the church is predominantly Jewish. But even within the Jewish community, there was a division that existed. Between those who were pretty much raised in Jerusalem and would follow the traditions of the Jews very closely, the law, and those who were Grecian Jews. They were Jews, but they were not raised in Jerusalem. They were probably raised in other parts of the world. For example, Paul would have been a Grecian Jew. That's one of the reasons why when you get to Acts, later on in Acts, and he gives that defense in chapter 22, he says, I was born in Tarsus, but what? Raised in this city. That's his way of saying, but I'm one of you. I'm one of you. I was not raised here, but I'm one of you. Because the people in Jerusalem felt that they were somehow special. And Jews from other places, actually, if they were Hellenists, they were so influenced by Greek culture, even though they subscribed to the Jewish faith, the way they thought, the way they acted, was more Greek in nature. So, you know, it, it's sort of like being Italian Catholic and being just your run-of-the-mill Catholic. There's a big difference between those. Yeah, you're Catholic, but you're not Italian Catholic. Well, that's sort of the attitude here when you get to Acts chapter 6. And so we see a complaint being lodged that in the daily distribution of food, widows were being overlooked. 
This was a big part of Jewish tradition, that the Jews were expected to take care of the widowed and the orphan. This is one of the things that make Judaism unique in the first century. Uh, in most Greco-Roman culture in the first century, widows and orphans were neglected. But this is one of the things that separated the Hebrew people from the other people of the world. They cared for their old and their young. I mean, in, in Greco-Roman culture, if a woman became a widow, she had no hope. There were no pensions in those days, folks. If her husband, and remember, the, vol the vast majority of the people were not affluent. This was a world of haves and have-nots. The Christian movement, initially at least, caught on only with the very poor, the very common folk. So if a woman died and her husband was not wealthy or property, she had no means of making a living unless she had children. This is one of the reasons why when Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son from the, from the dead, it's such a significant story. Because she's a widow, we're told, and her only son has just died. Well, she's a widow, she's poor, she has no one to take care of her, her only hope is her what? Her son, and now he's died. So when Jesus raised the son, it wasn't just raising the boy and restoring her joy, it was restoring her very hope of salvation and life. Well, the Jews took care of people, but the complaints being raised that these people from Jerusalem are getting fed first. And, and the Grecian Jews, those of us from other places, well, we're being neglected. So what are we going to do about that? That's the big question. What are you going to do about that? Well, we see divisions arising in the life of the church between the Aramaic and the Greek. And what I want you to notice today is how the early church met that challenge. How are they going to do that? I've said to you before, the wonderful thing about the book of Acts is that it's not just a record of past events. It is a blueprint for ministry today. And how they decided, the apostles, the leaders of the church, to meet this challenge is a great example for us. When we face difficulties in the life of the church, how does the leadership respond? Well, we have a great example of true leadership here. First thing I want you to notice is that the only difference between an opportunity and a catastrophe is a matter of attitude. The only difference between a catastrophe and an opportunity is a matter of attitude. The apostles could have been ready to pull their hair out at this point. You people are fighting over food. Don't we have bigger fish to fry? But that's not what they do. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, how did they respond to this problem? Well, they didn't throw the complainers out. You know, every church has complainers. If, you, if you've never been in a church where there are no complainers, you haven't been there long enough. Because sooner or later, they're going to show up. There's always somebody who wants to complain about something. And if you're in leadership, what you really want is for those people to go away. Just, just go away. I once heard a clergyman say, he's no longer in this diocese, thanks be to God, but he once said, I, I was talking to him about his church, and I said, well, you know, how's it going? And he was telling me about all of these problems, and I said, well, how are you going to handle them? He said, oh, it's nothing that a few well-placed funerals won't solve. Well, at the very least, it was an honest response. 
What was he saying? He was saying, I just want the complainers to go away. And sometimes that's what we want, don't we? We want the complainers to go away. Now, part of the reason we want the complainers to go away is because we think we know what the church needs. And sometimes the leadership does. There are some people that are just complainers. But I find it very interesting here that these people came up and complained, and the apostles didn't say, hey, listen, we got bigger fish to fry. They didn't throw the complainers out. That's the first thing. Second thing is that they didn't ignore or shun the complainers. Because sometimes complaints are what? They're valid. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily easy to hear, that things aren't going as well as you would like or as you think they're going. But the point is that they did not shun the complainers. You know, there are some branches of the church that that's what they do. That's what they do in the Amish community. If you don't toe the line, they shun you. They cut you off. Well, you notice here they didn't shun the complainers. They didn't throw the complainers out. They did not outvote the complainers. That's another thing. Uh, somebody once said there is no democracy as pure as a Baptist congregational meeting. What do you do? You have a debate, you follow Robert's rules of order, isn't that what we do? That's what we do as Anglicans in the, in the vestry, we, we follow Robert's rules of order, somebody will make a motion, somebody will second the motion, we'll have discussion, somebody will call the question, and then we'll vote. And the Holy Spirit always works in the 51%. Or so we think. Or so we think. Uh, it didn't happen immediately. But over the course of time, one of the things that we discovered at St. Helena's when I was there as the rector is that we had reached a point of trust on the vestry to such a degree that we never took any action unless it was unanimous. And I remember being in one vestry meeting, and we had a discussion, and everybody was of one mind, and we had one person who disagreed. And she was not a complainer. She was actually very soft-spoken, very quiet, hardly ever said a word. And on this particular occasion, she just sort of sheepishly raised her hand and said, I don't think this is right. Now, we could have just called for a vote and said, well, we're going to vote, and that's all there is to it, and we didn't. I said, all right, well, why don't we just take a month? This is not a pressing matter. There's sometimes when they are pressing matters. I said, but this is not a pressing matter. Why don't we just take a month and we'll all go home and we'll pray about it. And we'll come back next month and see where we are. And we came back the next month, and there'd been a change of heart. Not on her part, but on every other member of the vestry. Now, I'm not saying that always happens. And I'm not saying that every action of the vestry should be unanimous. Sometimes it simply can't be. But what it does mean is that if you trust the people with whom you are working, then it is always important to listen even to that one lone voice. And we can see in the life of the early church that they did not outvote the complainers. Nor did they leave the complainers. You know, sometimes that's what people do. This church is full of complainers. So I'm going to go someplace else where they don't have any. You'll be a wanderer for the rest of your life. 
Because every church has them. Every organization has them. There's always that sort of person. Here's the fifth thing I want you to notice. They didn't kick the can down the road. You know what often happens in churches when there are disagreements and there's complainers? Let's form a committee. Let's form a committee. Somebody once said, God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. He sent his son. But you know, oftentimes that's what we do in bodies and boards, don't we? We, we form a committee. And we know what the purpose of the committee is, to sort of resolve the problem. But the hope is that the committee will take so long doing its work that other problems will arise and we'll forget about this one. How many of you have ever seen that happen in business, in the military, wherever it may be? We see this happen all the time. I want you to notice that as they faced the challenge, they did not do any of those things. They didn't throw the complainers out. They didn't outvote or shun the complainers. They didn't leave the complainers. And they didn't kick the can down the road. What did they do? Well, they delegated the duty. I love the fact that the apostles didn't say, all right, everybody sit down, be quiet, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. You know, there are some people like that, benevolent dictators. But that's not what they did here. They did what? They delegated the responsibility. And notice something else here. Who did they delegate the responsibility to? To those who saw the problem. All right, you see the problem. We acknowledge the problem. We're going to give you the responsibility for fixing the problem. I, I think that's sage advice, folks. It's sage advice. And so what did they do? Well, they called the first seven deacons. They called the first seven deacons. Who are these seven men who would have the responsibility of what? Resolving this problem and making sure that everybody was cared for in the life of the church. The first one was Stephen. What we are told about Stephen was that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Second thing you'll notice is Philip. You're going to encounter Philip in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 21. He is described as an evangelist. Incidentally, he is the only person in the book of Acts described in that way. Philip is the only person described as an evangelist. Now, sometimes we refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the four evangelists, the four gospel writers. But actually, the only person ever referred to as an evangelist was this man, Philip. Prochorus. Who was Prochorus? Well, tradition holds that he was an early bishop in the church. Now, bishop in those days did not mean a bishop like we have today, a prelate. He was probably the leader of the early church, and he was a martyr. The word martyr comes from a word which means witness. But he obviously gave up his life for the sake of the gospel. Nicanor. We don't know anything about Nicanor. This is the only reference to him anywhere in the pages of scripture or in secular history. Timon. We don't know anything about him. Parmenas. We don't know anything about him either. We don't know anything about any of these people with the exception of these few. And of course, the final one, who is from Antioch and a convert to Judaism. So we don't know who these men are, but they obviously were among the complainers, or at least men who were concerned about the welfare of their fellow believers. 
Here are a couple of sound principles for church leadership that I think we glean from this situation. The first is this. There should always be, in the life of the church, a division of responsibility. The church is made up of many members. Uh, we're going to flip around here just briefly, but I want you to turn, if you will, back to Ephesians. We were there when we first started, but turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says here. Chapter 4, verses 7 and following, he says this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I, I, look at it, what he says here. He says, I gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds, some teachers. He didn't say that I'm going to give you one person who has all of those qualities. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, a whole section on spiritual gifts. Now there are, verse 4, a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And I think perhaps the most explicit example of what we have here in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. For as in the one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If the gift is prophecy in a portion to our faith, if it is service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I'll share two things with you just about my own ministry. When I first uh, became the rector of St. Helena's, I felt very overwhelmed down there. Big congregation, it was healthy. I was following a man that I had worked with for six years, and I'm just wondering, how was I going to do this? In fact, when they called me, I was on vacation. The rector announced that he was leaving and going to be the dean of the cathedral in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was on vacation. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, and my cell phone rings, and I pick it up, and they said, hey, Jeff, the rector just announced that he's leaving. I said, oh, I know. That's terrible. We're going to have to really pull together. And they said, yeah, we'd like you to be the rector. And I, the first words out of my mouth were, 
I am not Frank Limehouse. I'm not going to be who you had. Even though I worked with him for six years and supported his ministry, that's not me. And one of the wardens said, Jeff, when in doubt, play your high card. I've never forgotten that. When in doubt, play your high card. And he knew what I was talking about. My, hard, my high card, my gift was preaching and teaching. And he said, if that's your high card and we're calling, that's what we want you to do. And he said, we the vestry will fill in all the other holes in the life of the congregation. You play your high card. I've never forgotten that. And so I've come to realize that real leadership is not feeling that you have to do it all and that you have to be the master of it all. Real leadership is playing your high card and then surrounding yourself and empowering people to play their high card. Surround yourself with good people that you trust, whose gifts complicate without duplicating your own, and then what? Set them free. It was one of the things when they called me to be the rector at St. Philip's, I was looking at this great parish with its wonderful history, its tradition, 300 plus years of gospel ministry, the mother church of the diocese of South Carolina, and thinking, how can I do this? And realizing I can't do this alone. And I need somebody who can come and help complement my gifts. And so I said to the vestry, you've got some great clergy here. I need one more. And I brought a man who, whose gifts do not duplicate mine, but they complement mine. And I see two guys sitting back there in the window back there who do not duplicate, but they complicate our gifts. I could not do what Hank does. I could not do, what did I say? Well, sometimes. <laughs> Well, the Holy Spirit spoke. I, don't. I could not do what Hank does with the men's ministry here. I can tell you right now. He has got an, a tremendous gift with that. And he just runs it beautifully. And we've got men coming from all over the city. I could not do what he does. Pure and simple. Not as well as he does it. And, and Mark Bouton is a pastor extraordinaire. He, I just don't have that gift. And Lord, I have to remember, they didn't throw the complainers out, so. <laughs> but we all have gifts. And it doesn't mean I have to do it all, or that they have to do it all. But we complement each other. And if we are empowered by the same Holy Spirit, then what happens? Everybody's needs are met. Let me tell you a little story. Probably you've heard it. Simple illustration. I think I've already shared it here. At least I shared it with the vestry, I think. Somebody once told me this, and, and it seems a little trite, a little simplistic, but I think there's truth in it. There was a man who was visited by an angel, and the angel said, I want to give you a picture of heaven and a picture of hell. The man said, oh, I'd be interested. He said, which one do you want first? And the man said, oh, give me the bad news first. Let, let's, let's, let's see a picture of hell. And so the story goes that the angel said, well, shut your eyes. So the man shut his eyes, and all of a sudden he felt himself moving. There was a rush, and finally he came to a stop, and the angel said, open your eyes, and he saw this beautiful mountain scene and this gorgeous, gorgeous crystal lake. It was a gorgeous day, and a huge banquet table piled high with the most delectable foods. And there were people seated all around the table, but when he looked at them, they were all emaciated, like prisoners of war. And they were starving, even though the food was right before them. 
The man said, what is wrong with these people? Why don't they eat? And the man said, take a look at their arms. And he could see that there was a brace on their arms from their shoulder down to their elbow so that they could put the fork in the food, but they could not lift it to their mouths. The man said, this is horrible. This is hell. Get me out of here. The angel said, shut your eyes. So he shut his eyes. He found a rush, came to a stop. The angel said, open your eyes. He opened his eyes and he saw this beautiful mountain scene. He saw this magnificent crystal lake. He saw this banquet table piled high with all of these delectable foods. And he saw these people sitting around the table, but they were healthy, well-fed, nourished. And what's the first thing he looked for? See if those braces were on their arms. And you know what he saw? They were. But he also noticed that while they could not feed themselves, they could feed each other. And everybody was nourished and well-fed. Listen, folks, that is the picture of the Christian church. It's not like a football game. How many, how many players on the field in the football game? How many? 22 on the field. How many in the stands? Thousands, 80,000. And so often, that's the picture of the church. 22 people down there killing themselves on the field and 80,000 cheering them on. That is not the church. The church is not a place where you have four men, no matter how gifted or talented they are, servicing the needs of thousands. It is a picture where you have four people doing their job, proclaiming the gospel, ministering, and building up the saints for the work of ministry so that the saints feed one another and God's people are nourished and healthy. And that's what we see happening here in the book of Acts a division of responsibility. Further thing you see is a plurality of leadership. If you go to Acts chapter 13, I want you to notice something here. Go to Acts chapter 13 for just a moment. I got six minutes to get through this. Acts chapter 13. I always say that Acts chapter 13, it's going to be a while before we get there, but Acts chapter 13 is a picture of the church that changed the world. Until you get to Acts chapter 13, the church shares its faith, but it's reactive, only as the opportunities present themselves. In Acts chapter 13, the church begins to target areas where the gospel has never been preached, and they go out and they evangelize those areas. So this is really, in many respects, the beginning of the missionary era. So what was this church that changed the world? This was the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. Well, look at how Acts chapter 13 begins. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. The word prophet simply means preacher. That's, that's what the word means in the New Testament. So you might translate this, and in the church in Antioch there were preachers and teachers. There was Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice here that it says there were prophets and teachers. There were preachers and teachers in the church in Antioch. Not just one. Not one preacher, not one teacher, but preachers and teachers. 
Every time an Anglican priest is ordained, in the Roman Catholic Church when a priest is ordained, and by the way, the Anglican ordination service and the Roman Catholic ordination service are very similar, almost identical. Uh, in 1896, the Pope declared Anglican orders invalid. He said, you're not real priests, not in the proper sense. And the Archbishops of Canterbury and York responded. And um, the reason why the Pope said that Anglican orders were invalid is he said because you've changed the concept of the priesthood. Because in the Roman Catholic service, the priest, when he's ordained, is handed a symbol of his office. You know what he's given? A patent and a chalice. Because the primary job of the Roman Catholic priest is to celebrate the Mass, the sacrifice of the Mass. In the Anglican ordination service, the priest is handed a symbol of his office. Guess what he's handed? A Bible. It's the only thing the prayer book requires that he be given at his ordination. A Bible. Why? Because the primary job of the Anglican priest is to preach the Word. So all of the priests that you have here at St. Philip's were ordained to do what? Preach the Word, which means i got to let them exercise that ministry. Somebody said, why doesn't the rector preach more? The rector would be glad to preach more. But if you want to hear the rector, you can hear the rector every Sunday. I, I teach the rector's forum. I teach this Bible study. Over the course of time, I'm going to be preaching more. But I have discovered that sometimes I reach a certain segment of the congregation, and those fellows reach a certain segment of the congregation. And so what we want to do is empower everybody to do their work. But I find it very interesting that in that church, there were preachers and teachers. It's plural, not one. Not one person doing it all, but there were many. So there was a plurality of leadership. Next thing I want you to notice here is that when they called for leaders, the deacons to do the work, they called for leaders who were what? Spiritually mature. Therefore, verse 3, Acts chapter 6, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. I think it's very interesting that this was an administrative problem, distribution of food. But when it came to choosing leaders to resolve the problem, they were concerned with spiritual qualifications, not administrative qualifications. Did you notice that? It didn't say, all right, choose from among you seven men with good administrative ability. It said what? Choose seven men who have a good reputation and who are full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say that in the church we don't need people who have administrative gifts. Of course we do. But that's not the first thing we should be looking for. Whenever you're looking for leaders on the vestry, the first thing you should not be looking for is that they were leaders in the community or business leaders. We don't want to neglect that, but the first thing we should be looking for is what? People who are spiritually mature. And that's what they did here in this situation. So they didn't neglect the problem. There was a division of responsibility. There was a plurality of leadership. They were spiritually mature people. And they did all of this, why? So that the apostles, listen to this, so that the apostles would not have to neglect their duty, which was preaching and teaching. My primary job, their primary job, Andrew's primary job, is to preach and to teach. Doesn't mean that we don't have other things to do. 
But that is our primary responsibility in the life of the church. And if we neglect those things, the people of God will suffer as a consequence. I think one of the things that is so sad in the church today is that we have very anemic teaching and very anemic preaching. And the people of God are starving for the word. Well, that's not going to happen around St. Philip's. I don't think that it has happened. But we are going to make it a veritable feast in the years to come. Because God has great things in mind for this church, as he had great things in mind for this early church. And when they followed the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the apostles, when every part did their role, the church flourished. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, still following the one they proclaimed and bore witness to. So be of good courage. Uh, remember that the church, whoever you are, you're a member of this congregation or a member of another congregation, God has called you here. And what you've got to ask yourself in the days to come is, what's my role? Not, is he doing his job? The question you need to ask yourself is, what can I do? It's the same question, basically, that John F. Kennedy asked in 1960 of the nation. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Well, do this. Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. In the name of the same Lord who gave everything for you. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we live in times very similar to the times of the apostles, times of difficulty. We sometimes face dissension within our own ranks. Sometimes there are people who complain, but sometimes, Lord, it's those very voices that we need to listen to. So grant us the grace, like the apostles, to use the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Guide us and direct us in the way that we should go. And empower your people. Empower the leaders to empower the saints for the work of ministry that we may all feed one another, that your church may be strong, and that like that early church, we may go out into the world, bringing the nations to their knees. In the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. No class next week? But have a very Merry Christmas.